From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweave It. Welcome to episode number four of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. Today we spotlight perspectives related to mass incarceration in the United States. Weave News editor Savannah Crowley speaks with Dr. Lisa Gunther about prison abolition work. And Rivka Rocchio gives us a preview of her creative work highlighting the experiences of correctional officers in Northern New York. I'm Savannah Crowley. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Lisa Gunther, who is the Queen's National Scholar of Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Gunther was on the St. Lawrence University campus to deliver the annual Mackay Lecture in Philosophy. Her lecture was titled, No Prisons on Stolen Land, Abolition and Decolonization as Interconnected Struggles. Keeping in mind the mission of Weave News, I began by asking her to reflect on how perspectives on prison abolition are represented, or not, in the news media today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to this conversation and for doing work on these important issues. When I look at the mass media, I see in the last five years or so, more perspectives advocating for prison reform, but I don't really see abolitionist perspectives in the mass media. I see those abolitionist perspectives on blogs and in anarchist publications, and also explicitly abolitionist publications like the publication that Critical Resistance puts out. But I think when the mass media deals with prison issues, often the furthest they're willing to go is to bring a reformist perspective. Mm -hmm. I think there has been progress made in the last five years or so on getting mass media to even report things like the nationwide prison labor strike Mm -hmm. that happened uh, last year in September. I would say that before the Pelican Bay hunger strikes finally got taken up by mass media, this labor strike probably would not have been reported in the New York Times, for example. Like in Georgia, they had a prison labor strike Mm -hmm. in 2009, I believe, that was really powerful, but you didn't see the New York Times reporting on that. It was only thanks to the concerted effort of the friends and family members of people in California prisons Mm -hmm. who were amplifying their voices And also newspapers like the Bay Area Black Newspaper, who were consistently reporting um, on the California prison hunger strikes and also publishing op-eds and analyses by people in California prisons that finally, through social media and through alternate Mm -hmm. forms of media, the mass media finally started reporting on these issues. So I think there's promise there. There's evidence that if the rest of us keep talking about something long enough, then eventually these big media outlets with a much further reach will pay attention. Mm -hmm. But I also think that in terms of the perspective they bring, it's rarely, if ever, abolitionist. Prison abolition is a difficult concept to grasp, and it's easy to misunderstand. Dr. Gunther emphasized that abolitionists are always interested in taking steps to address the social problems that make us believe prisons are necessary. So I take my 
understanding of prison abolition initially and primarily from Angela Davis. And for her, in her book, Are Prisons Obsolete?, mm -hmm. she raises the possibility of prison abolition not just as a project of dismantling the prison industrial complex, although it is that, but also as a creative movement of building the sorts of practices, institutions, and policies that we would need in order to make prisons obsolete. And she takes that idea from W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of abolition democracy as, again, not just a negative process of dismantling slavery, but a positive and creative process of building the sort of democratic practices and forms of democratic subjectivity that would be necessary in order to really reconstruct a post-slavery world. Um, and so I think abolitionists often get asked, well, if you abolish prisons, what are you going to do to replace them? Right. And I love the way that Angela Davis's more sort of multifaceted um, sense of abolition complicates that question. Right. Because for her, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between the prison that we should abolish and some other single institution that should replace it. If there is another institution that would replace prisons, it would probably be prison-like, or it would right. be still embedded in that same set of relationships. Rather, abolition is a kind of a movement and a horizon, a horizon that guides our practices here and now in the everyday to open up other ways of imagining what accountability means, what safety means, what it feels like, and also what sort of commitments to public health, to addictions counseling, to public education, to mental health care, all sort of, to gender justice and environmental justice, mm -hmm. and racial justice. What are all of these practices that if we really committed to a more just and equitable world would make the current function that prisons serve in our world today, which is so unjust, diminish if not become completely obsolete. Abolition is really looking to create and build positive alternatives that can focus on community and healing instead of the limitations that we see from our current system. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that project of moving beyond the current paradigm is in many ways a project of the imagination. Like We have to be able to imagine beyond problems and solutions as they present themselves in the world that we live in right now but also to see what are the practices that are already at odds with the, the kind of punitive dominant paradigm of accountability that we can then kind of open up and amplify and, and collectively lend our minds and our bodies and our communities to. So it's kind of about seeing a future that's already here in virtual form in the present but also just amplifying that presence so that we can create a movement towards a future that would be quite radically different from the present. So it's really evident to me in your writing that you are someone who spends time reflecting on your positionality or your geopolitical historical position in the world that mm -hmm. contributes to your worldview. And I'm wondering how that has impacted your own research and your activism. Sure, yeah. So I started thinking about prisons and looking at the world in a different way that was 
paying attention critically to policing and incarceration. Basically, after I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to start teaching philosophy at Vanderbilt University. So when I did my PhD in philosophy, I wasn't working on prison issues. They weren't really on my radar. Uh, I grew up in Canada and I was really interested in philosophy and I was interested in feminist philosophy and ethics. But prisons didn't present themselves to me as an ethical and political issue until I moved to Tennessee. And part of the reason for that is, I think, it's not that there isn't racism or economic inequality or uh, a connection between colonialism and incarceration in Canada. It's just that it was so normal to me that I needed some distance in order to really be able to grapple with that critically. And when I came to the U.S., I had that distance and I could see things that people who had grown up in Nashville maybe didn't immediately see. And so what really struck me moving to Nashville was just how racially segregated the city was. So you could walk from block to block and move through different worlds. And that wasn't something that I grew up with in Canada. But now that I moved back to Canada, I moved back to Canada a year ago, I see it with different eyes. But in any case, um, moving to Tennessee and then seeing sort of racial segregation in the city that I had moved into, and moving into a historically black neighborhood where I was basically a white gentrifier, um, made me aware that I was complicit in and sort of investing my own everyday life in a system that was perpetuating racial and economic inequality. Mm -hmm. But I didn't initially see the connection to prisons. And I didn't see that until Angela Davis came to campus and she spent a month at Vanderbilt teaching a graduate seminar on slavery, which began mm -hmm. with the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery except for those who have been duly convicted of a crime. And that was the first that I learned about this exception built into the 13th Amendment. And the analysis that Angela Davis developed of the prison industrial complex and the way in which slavery and the prison industrial complex interacted to produce a form of prison slavery then helped me to make sense of the neighborhood I had moved into mm -hmm. and also to see how my positionality as a white woman in the South in relation to police and prisons was as a hyper-protected, even alibi for racist violence against young black men. And so that's an intolerable position to occupy, <laughs> but it's also something that one can't just disavow. Or like if you really want to dismantle that system that appeals to the vulnerability of white women in order to deploy state violence against men of color mm -hmm. and women of color and trans and queer people and gender nonconforming people of color, then your awareness of that positionality isn't enough to dismantle those structures nor is shame or guilt about that positionality enough. You actually have to do some work to actively work against those structures. And so it took me a while, and I think I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to do that in an effective way. But what, what I ended up doing in my time, the 10 years that I lived in Nashville, 
is initially just doing my homework, learning more about the history of prisons and the connection between slavery, convict leasing, and incarceration in the U.S., and then writing letters to people in prison and eventually facilitating a discussion group with people in prison, mm -hmm. and then starting to write both academic and non-academic, more activist blog posts about race and incarceration, and getting involved with organizations like the No Exceptions Prison Collective in, mm -hmm. based in Nashville, Tennessee, which is named for a refusal of the exception built into the 13th Amendment, but also an affirmation that there should be no exceptions in who is eligible for uh, mattering, for, for ethical concern. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm really thankful for the time I spent in Tennessee and especially for the critical in intervention that Angela Davis's course made in my life uh, and my my thought as a my thought and action as a philosopher and as a person for um, kind of pushing me to move beyond philosophy as a reflective kind of armchair practice where you spend mm -hmm. a lot of time alone reading books <laughs> and writing things uh, towards a more dialogic practice of making sense of the world with other people whose positionality is very different from mine and connecting that thinking practice and that reflective practice to political practice. Mm -hmm. So part of the work that we did in our discussion group at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Nashville, um, and our group was called Reach Coalition. It's, mm -hmm. still, it's still going even though I'm no longer in Nashville. Uh, we organized teach-ins, we organized an art exhibition, we have a website that publishes work by incarcerated members of REACH Coalition, and we organized rallies and a petition to stop executions in Tennessee. So that's been a real gift to be moved to connect theory to practice mm -hmm. in my own life. Yeah, that's so amazing hearing about the work that you did with the REACH Coalition. Mm -hmm. And is it primarily people that are on death row or? Yeah, so uh, REACH is uh, a group that brings together people from volunteers from the outside with mm -hmm. uh, men who are on death row in Tennessee. So we met every week uh, for about two hours. And initially there were, I think the prison allowed us 10 incarcerated members and five non-incarcerated members. Mm -hmm. And those numbers sort of shifted over time somewhat arbitrarily <laughs> over the six years that I facilitated the group. And uh, we worked together both to read and talk about essays, short stories, writing on radical pedagogy like Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the mm -hmm. Oppressed, and sort of more policy-oriented papers on incarceration and death penalty law. So we would alternate weeks between talking about assigned readings and then working in subcommittees on issues that the men inside had identified as important to them. And so some of those issues were domestic violence, the school-to-prison pipeline, access to medical care in prison, and LGBTQ issues, and also death penalty law. So 
uh, those subcommittee weeks, we would just work in a more project-based way to make connections with organizations on the outside that were dealing with those issues and to try to sort of like in a more practical, engaged way, take some of the theoretical stuff that we were learning in the reading weeks and put that into action. That's so fantastic. And I'm just wondering if there was something that you wish that society knew about those men that you worked with. Yeah. Oh, well, I would direct them to the Reach Coalition website. It's a WordPress website mm -hmm. to hear uh, from the men themselves about their own perspectives on social and political issues and also their art and poetry. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I would want the world to know is that each and every person that I met on death row is a different, complex human being, that they are not terribly different from anyone else that you would meet on the outside in terms of having no one shared quality or characteristic that right. connects them, except for their shared positionality of being convicted of at least one murder and sentenced to death mm -hmm. and having to, to navigate the ethical and personal and political challenges of that position mm -hmm. and doing so in different ways with different inspirations. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media making efforts. If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org donate. Now back to the show. Later, we discuss some of the ideas addressed in Dr. Gunther's 2013 book, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives. In particular, I asked her to say more about the concepts of social death and civil death and the role that they play in abolitionist work. So social death is a term that I actually learned in Angela Davis's course. So one of the books that we studied was Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death. And Patterson analyzes slavery, not in terms of a fusion between property and personhood, although he acknowledges that that's true of many forms of slavery, and not in terms of forced labor, although he acknowledges that that's also true of many forms of slavery. But for Patterson, the underlying structure of slavery, and he takes a kind of a global transhistorical perspective on slavery across the world, is a form of extreme exclusion and social degradation to the point of being dead to society or dead from the perspective of those who hold dominant power mm -hmm. in the sense of not mattering as a person, being beyond the scope of ethical concern, but still you know, reachable and deployable as a tool, as a servant, as a... Commodity. Commodity as a prop for their own enrichment mm -hmm. and, and empowerment. And so one of the concerns I have about the notion of social death, and this is something that became apparent to me after I published the book and continued to be in conversation with people about my analysis of solitary confinement in particular as a form of social death or living death, as many prisoners describe it who have undergone it, is that the concept of social death 
doesn't account for the social life among people who have been consigned to social death from the perspective of a master. That that framework in critiquing the structure of social death also assumes the standpoint of the master who condemns others to social death. And it doesn't take the standpoint of those who, even if they are condemned to social death, create all kinds of meaningful relationships among each other right. that affirm different forms of social life that are often illegible or invisible to mm -hmm. the master. And so in my, in my book, I do try, I called it social death and its afterlives because I both wanted to say that solitary confinement as a form of extreme isolation mm -hmm. is a kind of afterlife or a, a perpetuation of the structure of social death that Orlando Patterson locates in slavery, but also the afterlives in the sense of all of those resistant relationships and practices of survival and thriving and forming kinship and enacting resistance that contest the social death sentence. So that's sort of my ambivalence towards the, right. the concept that I use in my own work. And I still find it useful for naming the problem or the systemic violence of slavery and of solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. But it's not the whole story. Civil death, like social death, is a way of naming the violence of a system that renders someone or a group of people dead in law, even at the same time that they are punishable by law. So civil death is a way of naming the specific, I would say it's a more particular concept that presupposes social death, but that in particular works to exclude groups of people from access to civil rights while still exposing them to the violence of state punishment. Yes, certainly we saw many powerful afterlives in the hunger strike at Pelican Bay and how yes. it really ignited a national or a global solidarity movement yes. that has so many um, positive effects and um, that built so much community on the inside and outside. Exactly. I'm wondering how you view the social political space in the United States in particular right now yeah. for reform or abolitionist movements. Um, so I think abolitionists and probably also prison reformers need to take a long view while at the same time paying attention to what are the conditions that people in prison are facing right now. So that's a high demand because you have to both be responsive on the ground to what people mm -hmm. are going through here and now. I think that's incredibly practical though. It is, yeah. And I think that that's how you... I mean, it is very enraging and depressing that the work of years, if not decades, can be uh, swept away in months. But that's why I think an abolitionist horizon is so important, because I like the perspective that critical resistance takes, which is not against reform, but makes a distinction between reformist reforms and abolitionist reforms where reformist reforms are short-term measures that might be politically pragmatic and doable and make people feel good in the, in the short term, but that ultimately deepen or re-entrench the prison industrial complex mm -hmm. and its logic, or abolitionist reforms, which might bring short-term, more immediate relief to people in prison 
and make their lives more livable in prison, but that are also contesting the logic of the prison and, of, and moving towards a transformation of that situation. So, I mean, I see death penalty abolition, the way it's been undertaken in the last 10 to 20 years, where the pragmatic approach is to say, we're going to abolish the death penalty by replacing it with life without parole, is a reformist reform. That's a way of abolishing one form of state violence, state execution, by fueling another form of violence, like life sentences without even the possibility mm -hmm. of parole. But I see reforms like the ones advocated for in the uh, California prison hunger strikes, like restructuring of the gang validation process mm -hmm. and a limitation on solitary confinement and more opportunities for recreational programs and education programs as abolitionist reforms that empower people in prison and make their lives less intolerable, but without accepting the logic of the prison as the only logic within which we can operate. So I think, yeah, there have been a lot of disappointing moves in the last couple of years at the federal level and at some state levels, but I do think we need to take a long view to get back to your first question, that uh, the New York Times is <laughs> publishing articles by Michelle Alexander, is reporting on the prison labor strike, is lifting up voices that five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, just would not have been in that forum. So it's a mixed right. bag for sure, <laughs> but one that I think still gives us reason to hope and reason to struggle. Thank you to Dr. Gunther for taking the time to speak with Weave News. You can find more information about the books and organizations mentioned on our program by visiting our podcast page at weavenews.org interweaving. For Weave News, I'm Savannah Crowley. Up next, John Collins speaks with Rivka Rocchio about her creative work on mass incarceration in northern New York. Hi, my name is Rivka Rocchio. I am an assistant professor at SUNY Potsdam in the Department of Theater and Dance. And my focus is on community cultural development and applied theater work in performance and directing. So doing drama and theater inside, particularly working inside a community cultural development methodology, means that there are a group of guys who voluntarily sign up to be a part of a drama workshop and they really dictate what it is that they want to use drama to do. So the projects that we work on, the programs that we do shift from semester to semester or across the scope of a year. So, you know, we've done everything from like poetry slams and poetry writing workshops to they've written their own pieces that they've performed, um, their own plays that they've performed. They've done previously published work, so you know, taking work of other playwrights and then staging that inside. They've also worked with some students at SUNY Potsdam and collaborated on pieces together. So it's really shifted just depending on who shows up into those workshops or into those spaces. My goals in going inside and making theater with uh, folks who are incarcerated have always been around creating something that celebrates beauty, that has joy, and that opens up a space for humanity to express itself. 
I feel like I'm privileged to some really beautiful artistic moments that don't leave the walls and some really challenging and frustrating moments as well. As an extension of her ongoing creative work, Rocchio applied to participate in the St. Lawrence Citizen Journalism Incubator, a new local initiative led by Weave News. The incubator offers basic training and citizen journalism techniques to people who want to carry out investigative projects in their community. Rocchio brought to the program a wealth of experience doing theater work with incarcerated individuals in Arizona. And in recent years, she's been doing similar work in the North Country at Riverview Correctional Facility and St. Lawrence County Correctional Facility. For the incubator program, she envisioned a project called North Country Bound. When I sat down with her recently, she explained why she chose to focus that project on the perspectives of former correctional officers. So moving into this new location, I wanted to understand both what prisons meant to the economics of the region, what prisons meant to the people who had livelihoods here. So when they built all of these prisons in the late 1980s, early 1990s, what that did to sort of cement the correctional facilities as holding ground like in the North Country, that this was a really large statement of prisons are here and they're supporting the economics of the region and they're not going anywhere uh, lest there be a really dire consequence to the folks who earn their livelihood here. I was really kind of deeply troubled by just that idea of earning a livelihood through the oppression, the jailing, the caging, and the incarceration of other people. And I wanted to know more about what it meant to go inside and have that be your nine to five job of being in that space and, and watching over people and to hear stories from correctional officers of what that experience was like for them, how it shaped the way that they understood justice, how it affected or if it affected their life at home or their understanding of the different worlds that there are, the free world and the jailed world. And what I think has become kind of a through line in the work too, whether their interactions with folks inside who are majoritively black and brown shape their understanding of race. Because the North Country being 94% white and then having folks who are from this region who are mostly white going in to work in spaces where the people who they are guarding are mostly black and brown, I wondered what sort of impact that had on their understanding of race. North Country Bound came out of a desire to really understand the impact of mass incarceration in the North Country. I had a lot of stereotypes about who correctional officers were who went into this line of work I had had a lot of really negative interaction with correctional officers. We would be working inside a theater workshop and really exploring some sensitive and some vulnerable artistic expressions from the guys, like things that they had written, right? Monologues that they'd written, poems that they'd written. And a CO would just barge into the space and say, you can't sit on that desk or you can't be that close to each other talking to, to two of the guys who are in the group. It's like, okay, well, I understand the roles that they have, but it's, I felt as if the space that we were cultivating for expression was a threat to the culture of dehumanization and the culture of just general unkindness that was in the space. 
And so as we were really working hard to create not just theater, but like human connection and kindness, it seemed like almost a revolutionary act in their eyes. And I thought, wow, how terrible that the culture inside these institutions has diminished so far that kindness is seen as a threat. With these experiences of unpleasant interactions fresh in her memory, Rocchio began sitting down to talk with some former correctional officers. And something interesting happened. They were saying things that I found myself thinking. They said things to me just about the toxic nature of correctional facilities, the negative culture of being a correctional officer, and the way that culture sort of sometimes empowered correctional officers to make dehumanizing choices and the ways that they tried to subvert that or to humanize the places that they were in to see the men and the women that they were charged with keeping secure as humans and not as anything other than that. I mean, the prisons, they exist to punish people as they are, right? And to rehabilitate people. And if we focus so primarily on punishment, then we lose those spaces and those opportunities for people to grow, for everyone to grow, not just for the guys who are incarcerated, but everyone who comes into that facility. And since 95 or 97 percent of the people who are locked up are getting out, are coming back home, we want to always uphold them. I want to always uphold them as my neighbors and my friends and my future doctor and the people who are a valued part of our community. So treating them the way that we do now, the culture that exists now, is not the way that that's going to happen. So far, Rocchio has interviewed five former correctional officers, four men and one woman. And she's creating a series of monologues based on their stories. While there's a lot of important statistical information and research that I have been doing as part of just understanding how correctional officers have come to inhabit the role that they're assigned inside the facility. Primarily, I'm interested in the stories that they've witnessed or been a part of. I think every story that's offered to me, every interview that I do, I'm looking at it through that theatrical lens of uh, how does the moment that's being described to me or the story that's being told manipulate emotion, space, and time in a particular way that could be staged. Because um, ultimately, the stories that I'm gathering, the interviews that I'm doing, I'm going to piece together into a show that I'll perform. Rocchio generously offered to give us a preview of the show in the form of two monologues. The first one is titled, Stereotypes. Your big stereotypes? Babysitter and tough guy. Tough guy. You can get numb to the individual. Sometimes cold and rigid. Everyone is a face. Doesn't matter. Your crime, your history, your story. 10 to 15 years working inside. That's where that coldness comes from. You got this horrific story? Isn't new to me. I've heard it 37 times. Seriously? Seriously. On the other side of tough guy, babysitter. Interactive supervision. A philosophy of creating things for them to do. You have a whiteboard, trivia up for the day to create a positive interaction to create positive kinds of things, like coloring contests or whatever it is. 
And you know what they say, nothing ever goes on in a jail. That's your big stereotype. When putting these monologues together, Rocchio says it's essential to find ways of preserving the personality of the individual whose story she's hoping to share. I've been video recording them just to make sure that I capture not just the stories, but also the vocal imprint of who's telling the story. So you know, how they pause when they're trying to think of the right word or when they get fired up, how the inflection in their voice changes, right? Like, do they talk with their hands? Do they lean forward as they're speaking? Like those are really important character building components that I think if I were working as a traditional journalist, I would not be so interested in. The second monologue she shared with us is titled Beer and Your Average Correctional Officer. Whatever job I ever had in my life, whether it was digging a ditch or working in corrections, I always made the best of it. That's just the way I am. So, and I, I'm not a mean person by nature. I never, I like the inmates there more than I like most of the officers. I miss the inmates more than I miss the officers, you know? with the exception of the close friends I had who were officers. One more thing. So the first year we opened the brewery, I was in the back. I was in the brew house brewing beer and I had the garage door open and I looked and there's the ex-inmate standing there. He's like, I gave him the finger like one minute cause I was in the middle of something and I went outside. He was from Messina, so he was a local guy. And he had his girlfriend with him and we sat down at the picnic. I'm, he sat down at the picnic table and he goes, he goes, Mr. Jamie, I just wanted to introduce my girlfriend to you because you were like, you're one of the few people that treated me like a human being in there. And he came and you know, and that's happened to me twice there, twice in five years. And that was, one of the best moments of my life. It was awesome. And yeah, no, we were just about crying and it didn't go far, didn't go long. I bought both of them a beer. We talked about other things. He told me what he was up to and stuff, but that he even went out of his way to come and see me. I thought it was pretty cool for that. So I always had sympathy for them, empathy, but a lot of people don't. Or maybe they do, but they don't want to show that because so that's weak or something. But that's why I'm not your average corrections officer. But there are other guys just like me in there, but not many of us, you know, from my experience. That was Rivka Rocchio, a theater professor at SUNY Potsdam, sharing some of the work included in her North Country Bound project. You can find her on Twitter at Rockio Rivka. Here at Interweaving, we're always seeking to spotlight the voices of people who are working to create a better information ecosystem and a more just world. A big thanks to Rivka for giving us a window into what happens when creative work meets citizen journalism. For Weave News, I'm John Collins. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together, one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Be Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. 
There you can find out how you can support or join us in our work. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving.